0: as well as full transcriptions of each podcast episode at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. And don't forget to check out the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Facebook page. Give me feedback, suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, and let me know if there's someone you would love to see as a guest. If you have specific questions, feel free to post them on the page and I will answer them on the podcast. This summer, I'm adding a co-host, fellow author Kate Carius quinn We'll be doing a series that focuses on hybrid and indie authors. If you're thinking of going the self-pub route, we've got authors who found success with six-figure sales, as well as authors who are just starting out on the road to indie publishing. Learn from them. Learn with us. When Skylar gets a glimpse of her future and she's with her arch-enemy Truman, as in romantically with him, She cannot let that happen. Trying to change the future means complicating the present. In, now, and when. A romantic dramedy with a sci-fi twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. On sale now.
1: Okay, so here we are, and we are doing a post-show.
2: I'm going to put it in front of the show, but it's post-show chat because I, I, Mindy, Mindy McGinnis, (laughs) (laughs) most of my listeners know this, but I am like legitimately living somewhere where like people still have trunk phone lines and you can have, what is it called, Kate? What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say trunk. I mean, that's what it is, but that's not. Telephone calls? Oh, yeah, we have those. We have those. Yeah, party lines. What? Party lines. Like yeah, you know what that is, right?
1: Yeah. It's like from the twenties, like when phones were first invented. Like you could listen well, into everybody else's phone call and be like oh. yeah, totally.
2: No, we had that right up into in where I live, we had trunk lines right up until ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah. Oh Which like I mean, today there's no way because like total violation of privacy. I don't even know. Yeah. But yeah. Oh yeah. Up your phone, and you could listen to you'd hear a click like you'd hear a click on the line, but and you would know that someone was listening to you.
1: That's if you, crazy. So, not just like people in your house, no, like the neighborhood, people,
2: yeah. Well, and by neighborhood, it's like you know, you had four guesses like who it might be, but yeah, <laughs> people. So, that's where I live. That's where I live. We had trunk lines right up until like the mid to late 90s.
1: My God. And um, oh, when did yeah. you stop using outhouses?
2: Um, I have actually never used an outhouse, believe it or not. Uh, I've had running water my whole life. Your parents? Now, I will say. My parents grew up with running water. Uh, interestingly enough, my mom has a great story. Her dad and mom got married like in the 20s and they were building a house. They built. Their own house. Well, my grandpa built it with mm-hmm. his dad. He said, We're getting indoor plumbing. Like, that's what we're doing. We're building this house with a bathroom. This and is his your dad, grandfather. This is my grandfather on my mother's side.
1: So, who? The he, German one? Who? The German one. Who just passed yeah. away. He that just passed be, away last week. I'm just going to bring, I just bring all your sad stories in. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I know. The dead uh, dog. The blue the jay volunteers. hater. Blue Jay? No, that was my great-grandfather.
1: Oh, yeah. oh, okay. That was th-
2: that was his dad. And yes, he hated Blue Jays because he actually came over on the boat, right? Yeah. So he spoke German um, and English, but he did speak German often. And um, in his later age, my great-grandfather, he would sit at the window and look out at his bird feeders. That was what he loved. And um, he hated Blue Jays. And he would get so upset. Like, Goddamn Blue Jays! <laughs> He hated them so much. So it's like, as, because they're bully birds. They bully the other birds away. They're as bad as squirrels. And so in my family, whenever we see blue
1: jays, we're like, God damn, blue (laughs) chase. That's so great. Yeah.
2: No, my grandfather, he built his house and his father helped him. And when he said he wanted indoor plumbing, his father was completely mystified and said he didn't understand. He said people used to want to, People used to want to shit outside and eat indoors. And because picnicking, I guess, was really big in the 20s. And he was like, now everybody wants to shit indoors and eat outside. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's my Germans. My dad was actually, the house he was born in had a, um, it had an outhouse. Like he remembers as a boy using an outhouse. And my dad is like, um. I think he's 71. That's a late adapter. Yeah. So it was like a little house that my grandparents had built as like a little starter house. It's it's amazing to think like not that long ago. No. Like. Yeah, it's true. That is my nightmare. I don't even like going camping to camping grounds. The mm-hmm. one time my friends convinced me to go camping, like they love going camping because it's like they hang out and they drink by the fire. Like it was okay. And then it was like time to go to sleep. And I was with Andy, my husband, and we were in a tent together. And I I was like, I'm afraid to get up and go pee at night because it's dark and it's scary. And the bathroom is like, you have to walk to it. So
2: I, wait, I, wait, 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 wait! But there was an actual bathroom. Yeah, but it wasn't like you're you not a camping walk to it. You're not. You're not camping. I'm not. There's a place uh, no. that's not camping.
1: No, it wasn't a nice bathroom. It was no, like a row of not, stalls and showers. No, it, was camp- nice. it, it was not nice. It was
2: Was there a roof on it? Yes. You're not camping.
1: That's not Indeed. camping. It was, it was <laughs> dirty. I, I, I'm sure it was dirty. I think if you stay in a motel that you like, are afraid to sleep under the sheets, like that's camping too.
2: That's not no, that's not camping. That, no, it's, that is it's technically that is budget
1: traveling. Technically, like camping. I mean, very similar. Very, did you
2: have a camper or did you have a tent?
1: We had. We were in a friend's tent. They brought a tent and an air mattress for us. Okay. Um, So you
2: you had a all right. Have you ever pissed in the woods, Kate?
1: No. No. Um, yes, when I was like in college once, we were like super drunk, and I think we were like walking around outside, and I think we like maybe peed outside.
2: (laughs) But you don't remember.
1: No, not really. Are you just
2: saying are you just saying that you peed your pants? Or did you (laughs) actually
1: No, like I think we I can't remember. But um, <laughs> I think we, we um, think like we popped a squat and like went somewhere, but um, right. like pee. But yeah, no, I think that's terrible. I don't ever want to do that. It's not good for I've
2: girls. done it many times. No, it's not easy. No, I mean, it, it's fair. It's a fair point that it is not easy for girls, but. There's a skill to it. There's a skill set that you learn so that you don't pee on your feet or your socks or your pants. But, I mean, generally, I just take mine off. It's just
1: easier. You just take off your socks or your pants or everything. Everything. So every time you have to pee, you take everything off. But then aren't you afraid something's going to bite your butt? <laughs> you check that you're not
2: going <laughs> to piss on a snake
1: or what a bear. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you would
2: notice a bear. I think you would, but you would also notice a snake. Like you, oh, like listen. I mean, I think, I think the basic rule of being outdoors has evaded you, which is always be aware of your surroundings. Like if if you've got that, you can piss anywhere, no, except the city because you get arrested.
1: I'm not even talking about snakes. I mean, like a bug.
2: You can it You're way bigger than that bug, and so is your piss stream. <laughs> I just it's going don't. to go away from you it's scared of you how would you feel if suddenly a huge ass
1: loomed <laughs> above you
2: and a waterfall of piss started falling you're not gonna go you know i'll bite that you're gonna run
1: fair point
2: <laughs> okay you have to understand that every other living thing in the world also has instincts and most of them are to avoid humans <laughs>
1: okay now there was something we were going to talk about so can you please find a segue between the giant ass coming towards you and running away from it (laughs) and segue that to our next topic?
2: so i mean great segue here if there were a giant ass in the sky (laughs) it would greatly impact your internet connection so i mean I have terrible internet for this particular uh, recording. And so Kate actually did a wonderful job of keeping herself under control and Uh guiding the conversation and Uh basically being me uh, for the first like 10 or 15 minutes because I was rendered mute uh, at about a 45 second lag. So I Uh just listened in. And then there was a terrible moment with nature in my closet, but you'll have to listen to get to it.
1: (laughs) That's a good tease. Some nature thing happened. Yeah. So speaking of self-publishing, I had to go in yesterday and make some changes to um, one of the first books that um, I co-published with Demetria and our other friend Marley Lynn, because it was flagged on Amazon for having some errors, spelling errors um, and some oh. punctuation things. Okay. Yeah. So it was actually super helpful that this person did this because they, they found these things that I just, you know how it is when you read a book 5,000 times and your eyes mm-hmm. just glide right over super simple mistakes. It's like mm-hmm. a missing punctuation mark or um, using then instead of then. Um, one point where we changed a character who had been female and we decided to make it a male. And so at one point it's like refers to him as her, which is confusing. Oh,
2: yeah, the um, pronouns were off. Yeah.
1: Right. So just nitpicky little stuff. But, you know, it impacts the reader's enjoyment of the book and it pulls them out of the story and i think some people more Mm -hmm. than other i think there's some people who would never see it and i think there's people who are hyper hyper aware of it and it really really bugs them the great thing is we invested in vellum and we actually did this when we published betty bites bath with you and demetria the reason we did that was because um we had stories short stories in verse i wrote a short story Mm -hmm. in verse Corey mccarthy did
2: Yeah. Corey McCarthy did. They wrote yes. one for us in verse that was very powerful.
1: Yes. Yes. I, it was I, amazing.
2: I actually, I mean, I accredit many, many things to my recent breakup, but Corey's story is one of them.
1: Really? Yeah. Wow. Because yeah, I read it. You never told me that before. That, it was, it was so powerful. It's very powerful.
2: And I read it and I was just like, it's called You Wake Up Next to Him, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I read that story when we were putting together that anthology. And mm-hmm. I was just like, there was just this pit in my stomach that opened up because I was like, well, that describes my relationship.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that is not, yeah. it does not describe a healthy relationship. It's like, yeah. Oh,
2: no, no. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I'm going to keep
1: that to myself. Uh, yeah. You never said that. That's really interesting. So, so Betty Bike Back, I don't know if your listeners know, is our feminist anthology of horror stories. I was in charge of formatting it because I guess I drew the short stick. <laughs> no, I
2: think you uh, volunteered, actually.
1: I think I was like, oh, I know how to do this now because I had formatted my first indie book, The Show Must Go On. And for that, I used a free online program through a website called Readsie, and it worked really well. But I found out when I tried to do, use that same program for um, Betty Bites Back that it just would not format the poetry like trying to get the mm-hmm. poetry to format correctly was just horrible it wanted to make every line like the start of a new paragraph or didn't want to oh. space it like it was just very confused about like what poetry was and how it's supposed to look It wanted it to look like prose i did research and um i found vellum and i fell in love it's such a beautiful program it's laid out so perfectly. It's so user friendly. I did not have to read any directions. I loved it. And you know, it can be difficult for Manning Wise to put together an anthology of short stories. And it wasn't it made it really, really easy and it looked beautiful and it looked professional and I can't take credit for it. Like the program does it all. You know, you just upload your documents and as long as you have your document, if you have your chapters laid out and they're at the top of the page, it makes it so easy to add your cover and all, you know, your front matter stuff that you need, your copyright page automatically formats your table of contents. It's, It's amazing. And so I've done all of our books since then on Vellum my only quibble is I wish it was available for PC. And
2: I, working with you on the Betty Bites Back anthology, mm-hmm. came to be aware of Vellum. And I thought, hey, I wonder if they would want to advertise on the podcast. So, you know, full disclosure, I would reach out to Vellum and ask them if they wanted to... Um, partner with this podcast and they did and uh so that's fantastic but it was so funny when they said yes that i remember i i was posting to you uh, over text and i was like hey Valum said yes and they were and you were like oh my god you like had a fan moment i you did you were so <laughs> You were so excited that Vellum was going to sponsor the podcast because you were so enamored of
1: them. I was. I was like, oh, my God. Tell them I love them. Ask them when I did. Vellum on PC. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really is. It's a beautiful program. It's just very clean looking the way it's laid out. It's really I I know I am gushing. I am a fangirl. And there's like an upfront purchase cost. It's just a one-time thing. And then you own it, which is brilliant. You know, I'd so much rather do that than, you know, have a company slowly bleed me out at like $10 a month for the rest of time.
2: We better, we better seek into Tara now and get her on. She has a great accent, by the way. You get to listen to an Australian.
1: Mm-hmm. I know. Which is always,
2: always a positive. Uh, We'll bring on Tara so that people can uh, listen to her instead of us.
1: Yeah. Okay, so Tara, (laughs) tell us about yourself, your writing, and what you do, and um, if your pants have ever been on fire. (laughs) Fantastic.
3: Yeah, so I'm Tara East, and I am a writer, scholar, and author of the novel Every Time He Dies. So at the moment right now, I'm actually doing my doctorate in creative writing, and I'm teaching at the university where I'm doing that doctorate. Um, But prior to that, I actually did a master's program and the product of that was Every Time He Dies. And the novel is essentially a mystery novel, but if you wanted to get down into like the weeds of genre, you could describe it as a soft-boiled crime novel with paranormal elements. So basically, the novel is about a woman named Daph who finds a watch on the beach that is the exact replica of her deceased boyfriends. The watch is haunted by a ghost with amnesia. And while she's trying to uncover his identity, she becomes involved in her estranged father's homicide investigation. So um, it took me about seven years and a couple of different writing courses to write the novel. And part of the reason why is because in the writing, I was teaching myself how to write. So for about seven years, I became just completely obsessed with writing, just devouring craft novels, YouTube videos, podcasts, blogs, everything that I could find that could support me through the writing process. So sort of like doing that independent study, but then I was also bringing in mentors, teachers, lecturers, editors, who could really help me with the craft once I had taken the story as far as I could take it. So seven years is a long
1: time to be writing one book. And often you hear the advice that, you know, you have to write that practice book that gets put, you know, under the bed or, you know, left in the dusty corner of your hard drive. Um, and you know, you move on to something else and you write another book and, you know, that was very much my experience. And I know it was Mindy's as well that, you know, we have books that we wrote and then we put them aside and we wrote more and we learned, you know, a little bit more with every book until we were published. What made you decide to to stick with this one book and keep
3: hammering away at it? Well, I think two things. Firstly, the novel changed so much through the course of that seven years. And I might actually come back to that point. But the reason why I stuck specifically with this book, and I do think it's really important that a writer knows why they're writing a book. And for me, I actually had a very personal reason. Um, I had a very close friend pass away uh, after a very long time and very serious illness and when she passed away I was just struck with this level of grief and I didn't really know what to do with it. I had dabbled with writing prior to that and I have a background in journalism and I had always wanted to write a novel and there was a part of me that thought that writing a novel would be such a great way to process my grief and to create something out of that grief And because my friend was the same age as me, when she passed away, I had this real moment of, as we all do, your your sense of your own mortality. And I had always wanted to write a novel. And suddenly there was a new urgency around that. And I knew that I had to get onto that as soon as possible. And of course, the first thing on my mind to write about was grief. Right. And that would be a difficult thing then
1: once you start writing with your friend in mind too to be yeah. like, oh, well, just a practice book, put it under, you know, get rid of it and move on to the next thing. You
3: really felt that emotional connection, like you had to
1: see it through.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it had a real sense of purpose behind it. And of course, I I do definitely want to mention that the novel is not a fictionalized version of my life. It is absolutely fabricated. There, okay. there may be a wink here or there towards a friend of mine but the novel is fictional like all of the characters are fictional their beliefs and their thoughts are not necessarily my own but so um so you have it, not had any ghostly encounters in your life well maybe there's been one or two but no definitely not <laughs> to the degree that daf has experienced
1: um so we are um in the midst of a series of podcasts where we are talking about self-publishing. And we've been talking a lot um, with various authors about why they chose to self-publish over traditionally publish and what their experiences have been. And we have talked to authors who are in various stages of this. We've talked to authors who've been doing it for years and are making very good income doing it. We have talked to authors who are more at the beginning How long has your book been published and what made you decide to go the indie route?
3: Absolutely. So Every Time He Dies came out in November last year. So I'm definitely at the beginning of my indie publishing career. And I think I was probably about halfway through the novel when I discovered Joanna Penn's podcast, as many indie authors do. And Mm -hmm. that was my lead in to self-publishing. And as I continued to work on the novel and I continued to research traditional options versus self-publishing, it became very obvious to me that I wanted to go the self-publishing route. But for full transparency, I was working with an editor at the time and Uh she really encouraged me to try traditional publishing. I put a few feelers out there and got close sort of twice to a deal. Uh Thankfully, it fell through because I still really in my heart, I still really did want to self-publish. I knew that the creative control was really important to me, as well as, of course, the the lucrative aspect of it. And I think the thing people really need to think about when they're tossing up between self-publishing and traditional is you really need to know what your goals are as an author. If you want prestige or awards, or if you want to be in bookshops, those are some reasons why somebody might go traditional. But of course, I do also want to add the caveat that even if you are traditional and you get into a bookstore, that book may only be in that store for like three months. So right. you really need to make sure you do your research because we have these concepts and these ideas about what being a traditionally published author means and you just need to make sure that you have the most up-to-date information and that you're not sort of living in the golden age of how it used to be. So I think Mm -hmm. people just really need to research around those two different options and to really know themselves Um, Because, of course, being indie means that you also have to do everything by yourself and you have to have the capital up front to pay for everything. And I fully acknowledge that for some people that may not be possible. So traditional publishing may be a better option. The other thing with being an indie is that, of course, you have to do all the marketing yourself and build an author platform. And you also Uh have to find all of the professionals to hire so that you can create a really good product. So hiring a cover designer, an editor, an interior formatter, if you choose to do that option as well. So you really need to decide, am I the kind of person who has the energy to do all of this? And am I tech savvy? And do I have the funds to do it? So I think you really need to know yourself and know what your goals are.
1: Absolutely. And it definitely sounds like you did your research and you have been looking into this for several years. So it wasn't something that you just decided to jump into. In terms of marketing, since you mentioned it briefly, can you talk a little bit more about how you handled marketing being a brand new author? A lot of times... You know, when you start indie publishing, you'll see the main advice given to new authors to market their book is to write the next book. And often indie success seems to rely heavily on being able to write quickly and publish quickly to constantly be having new books come out, which in turn helps boost your backlist I was hoping you could speak a little bit to that because seven years is rather long to write a novel, though I assume your your second one will not take as long since the first was a learning one. But yeah, how are you approaching
3: all of that? And what is your publishing schedule going forward for future books? I definitely have an experimental mindset. So prior to releasing Every Time He Dies, I actually wrote a trilogy under a pen name so that I could teach myself how you actually self-publish and how you actually market. And that was really useful for me for two reasons. One, I discovered it was very difficult to market under a pen name because everything has to be secret and you can't talk about yourself. And Mm -hmm. the second thing I learned was that It is very difficult to market when you have no author platform. Now, Mm -hmm. fortunately, I had been building my author platform for about three years prior to releasing my novel. So that was posting weekly writing advice blogs on my website. And about 18 months ago, I started YouTubing and I became a part of the AuthorTube movement. And Mm -hmm. so for me, And knowing my budget, I chose to focus heavily on that content marketing side of things rather than paid advertising, though I fully acknowledge that that will most likely have to change because of all of the changes that have happened on Amazon. But Mm -hmm. this is another thing people need to consider is you really need to start your author platform as soon as possible. You need to really start um, finding ways to build your email list. Like that's the most valuable thing you can have as an author because you own that. You don't actually own that a ton of times. Mm -hmm. Every author has talked about, yes, the importance of the email list. In terms of like the rapid release model, I knew that these books were not books that I could write in, say, a month's time, especially considering just with my own personal obligations as a scholar. Um, But I absolutely know that the second book is not going to take as long as the first book, because in that first book, like you mentioned, I was learning how to write. Sometimes I do feel that the advice of just write the next book can be problematic because if your first book isn't very good and if it doesn't sell very well, there's no evidence to prove that the second one will either. So I do feel like that advice is a little bit prescriptive and it doesn't really take in the nuance of readership and, and publishing. I do also want to mention that there are some outliers out there, like say Jenna Moresi, she's, um, she doesn't follow the rapid release model and yet she has a very big platform. So there are people who are not prescribing to the rapid release model and still making a living off it. Now, maybe yeah. she is the exception to the rule, but mm-hmm. it's possible. That's just also important for people to know that this sort of prescriptive advice can be a little bit dangerous and can be a bit like boxing in.
0: Make your pages look professional with Vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo and others or Deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books.
1: I would love to hear more about how you are selling your books locally, because that is not something that we have talked about very much yet on the podcast, but I have seen in groups like um, Facebook groups, like 20 books to 50 K people talking about actually doing very well, selling paperback copies of their books. I think logistically it's quite a bit more difficult than selling eBooks. You know, generally speaking, you have to pay to print the books yourselves, paying up front for your stock, you're having to store your stock. And then you also are in a very real way becoming a salesperson. And I personally hate hand selling. It's it's so uncomfortable. I, I have a very difficult time when I end up at a bookstore event where they want to seat me at a table in the bookstore for a signing, people come into the store and they kind of look at you and then they look away quickly. Like they don't want to be sucked in with that sales pitch, just uncomfortable. And if you're a good salesperson, you take the moment and you kind of call to them or, you know, you try to do it. And I am just like as deeply uncomfortable. And I'm like, yes, run away. This is Weird for both of us. Just go do your thing, and I will continue to sit here. Once had like a parent bring their kid up to the table and be like, "Look it! It's a real live author!" Like I was like (laughs) an animal at the zoo, and I was like, "Yes, I am. Hello, child. You too can someday sit at a table in a bookstore and question the meaning of life." Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing, how you're doing it, if it's killing your soul?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's so good that you shared that though, because that's such a good anecdote about you need to know yourself. So if you're not super into hand selling, then maybe just focus all of your marketing online. However, like for me, selling locally was really useful. And part of the reason why I decided to build that into my marketing strategy is because I have a background in journalism so I know how hungry newspapers, radio stations and TV stations and magazines are for local news, especially those daily daily media outlets where they're trying to churn stuff out every single day. So for that reason I approached my local newspaper And they ran an article on me. Then I approached local magazines. And because I, again, have that background in journalism, I wrote all the copy and I sent them all of the photographs and images. So literally, all they had to do was say yes and hit publish. And Hmm. then I approached local radio stations as well. So I was doing all of this. And in addition to that, I did an official book launch at a prominent bookshop in Brisbane. And that was such a good way to, of course, physically celebrate the release of the novel, but to also get my book into that store and to make contact with readers in the city where the novel was set. So all of that stuff is very sort of strategic marketing. And what came out of this, which was actually quite a surprise, and I did not factor this in in any way was that by doing all of this local media and by having my book in a couple of different independent bookstores is that local book clubs are now reading my book as part of their book club so you're you're also tapping into all of that readership that I would never like you can't market to those people if you know what I mean when you are marketing online you're marketing to your ideal reader you you will have somebody in mind a type of reader but it's still in many ways you're casting stuff out there into the internet and you can be as informed as possible and strategic as possible and you still don't really know if it's gonna work um, but then by doing this local media stuff like because it's such a small scale, and because you are a part of the community that you are marketing to you have sort of this insider knowledge and you know what you need to say in order to tap into that market because it's such a small scale and I have been surprised by how effective that has been because obviously from the get out, I I didn't know if it was going to land or not. It has been pleasantly surprising. So I do feel like if you're the kind of person who, if you're a writer, you're probably an introvert, but Mm -hmm. I can become extroverted when I need to. So if you also have that skill and if you're not too uncomfortable about hand selling. I do think it's a really viable option that people need to explore.
1: Can you just talk a little bit more about the the nuts and bolts of getting your book into bookstores? Because I think that is something that a lot of people have a lot of trouble with, or that bookstores are resistant to taking on indie books, or that they get inundated with requests from indie authors. And so sometimes it's quite difficult to convince them to do that. So
3: what was your strategy there? I had different strategies depending on the store. So stores in my local town, I actually went in in person with one copy of my book, plus a press kit that had all of the information about my book in it. So inside that press kit, I had a blurb about the book. I had the sort of like fact sheet Information about it, how many words, uh, an image of the cover, the type of genre that it was, the target audience. And then I also had an image of myself and my own bio in there, as well as like social media links and my website and contact information. So that was all in my press kit. And then I would go into the bookstore, I would introduce myself, I would show them my book, give them my press kit. And I would talk to them. Now, most of the time I already knew that they were open to having self-published authors and to having local authors in the store. So mm-hmm. I knew that they were likely to say yes. So okay. I would go in and I would give them my spiel, tell them about the book, talk through what kind of arrangements they they have with other local indie authors. And, and that's how it happened in my hometown, But how it happened when I was approaching bookstores in the city is that I would often have, I fully appreciate that not everybody can do this, but I would often have some kind of a link to the store. Like I would know somebody who worked in the store or I had run into one of the store managers at an event. There was some kind of like linking connection. So then I would put that into the body of an email and then I would send a digital copy again of my press kit and a very professional and polite email requesting that they have my book in stock. And everybody has said yes. But the thing is you need to really write a professional email. And what you need to include in that email is, again, the synopsis of your book, but keep it quite brief. Like think elevator pitch, one or two sentences. Introduce yourself, say why their readers, the, the people who are their customers will want to read this book. And again, you keep that to two or three sentences. And that's the thing that is going to make people pay attention because you've got a professional email and you're saying how they are going to benefit of having your book in store.
2: I got to tell you that uh, even though I I missed like the first 10 minutes, I'm sitting here in my closet and that's where I do all of the recordings and Kate knows I was outside like pretty much all day because it's the only decent day we've had lately and I was gardening and I told Kate, you got to tell me when it's time for me to go inside so that I you know, get this podcast set up and she's like, okay. So she did, and I came in, and I'm sitting here, and I'm getting everything set up, and I look down, and I have a tick on my boob. (laughs) On your what? My boob, Kate. It was on my boob. Oh my gosh! On my boob.
1: I I, I thought you might have said boot, and I was like, "That's not so bad."
2: I definitely missed about five minutes, maybe 10 of your conversation because he wasn't attached yet. He was still making a run for it. And I'm oh, like, man. shit, I got to get it now. <laughs> and so I just kind of bolted and I ran in the bathroom and then I stripped down and did a full body check. But um, everything seems to be okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't appear to have anything attached. So anyway... Uh, that's what I was doing while you guys were. And, oh, and Kate, you were doing a great job of being fake me. You were so, like, on task. And
1: you were so turned okay. on by fake so, you.
2: I was so turned on by fake me that I had to run into the bathroom and strip off all of my clothes and do a tick check. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's how I react to arousal. It doesn't work in a lot of situations. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> Tara, this is our sense of
3: humor. I'm march. so sorry. Yeah. This is maybe why
1: I'm single, Kate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm loving it. I just feel like I'm listening in on a chat yeah. between friends. It's good.
2: <laughs> so this all features into Mindy's single life. Um, I was I was listening in to your conversation and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Tara, you're talking about marketing. You are in Australia and you are writing in kind of the mystery market. And I wondered, of course, Amazon being the big, you know, father of all things, is marketing different for an indie author working out of Australia versus an indie author that is working
3: with Amazon in America? It's funny, as soon as you started talking about all of that, the first thing I thought of was... um You know, when I was first writing the book, it was a really big deal to me where I set it because I was a little bit afraid that setting a novel in Australia might alienate uh, American readers. And that Mm -hmm. hasn't been the case. Mm -hmm. I have actually had um, really good sales in America, which has been a lovely surprise. Um, But what I have noticed, actually, and if there are Australian authors listening, I feel like with the Australian market, it is actually really really important that you tap into your local market. Um, because my novel is set in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. What has really helped me has been reaching out to local independent stores, running in-person events, uh, at independent bookstores and also at, um, at restaurants and at universities and things like that, that has actually really helped and people really enjoy that stuff. And, you know, this might actually go against what a lot of indie authors sort of think about where they have so focused on online marketing, marketing, which of course you absolutely need to do. But I think you also need to tap into your local market, particularly if you are I want to say if you're outside of America, it's, it's really important that you tap into your local readership, especially if your novel is set in that location, then tap into the readership who live in that location. The feedback I've gotten from Australian readers is that they have loved reading a book, a mystery novel, a crime novel set in Australia, and particularly set in Brisbane, because it's not a very popular location. Most of our crime novels are set in Melbourne or Sydney. You do need to think about where is your book set, who is its readership, and then trying to target that readership. Because I have to admit, when I decided to go the indie route, I did wonder if being Australian was going to be a hindrance. Um, Me being Australian, uh, the book being set in Australia, and I'm glad to see that that hasn't been the feedback at all that I've gotten off anybody and that um, American readers have actually really enjoyed reading a novel that is set somewhere else. And I mean, of course, we're both Western countries, so there's so much crossover, but there's enough of a difference that it has that feeling of, um, I almost want to say exotic, but that would be a little bit of a stretch. But there is enough of a difference that is interesting and intriguing. But of course, there's so much overlap because we are both Western countries In terms of Amazon, the thing that has been perhaps most frustrating is that the reviews from one platform don't necessarily cross over to the other. So if I get reviews on the Australian Amazon platform, they don't appear on the American platform and things like that. So. There's nothing I can really do about that now that those two platforms are separated and we have Amazon Australia versus Amazon in the U.S., but that is just something that maybe people need to be aware of. And what you can do to counter that is to approach book reviewers yourself Prior to the release of your novel. So, sending out ARC copies, probably ebook copies, because that's um, the economically clever decision. But reaching out to book bloggers and book reviewers on Instagram and YouTube and sending them a copy of your book and trying to get reviews that way rather than just relying on Amazon reviews. And the good thing about book reviewers, independent book reviewers, is most of them read your book for free. And most of them will publish their review on their website, their YouTube channel, or what have you. And they will also copy and paste those reviews onto Goodreads and to Amazon. And that is actually one of the best ways to get around that issue of um, being outside of America and not being able to have your reviews on all the Amazon platforms, if that makes sense.
2: So Tara, you have then a listing for your book and your author profile on amazon.com like us and amazon.com I assume it's a us you okay so they're separate and you can't they can't be blended like do you have to view your sales separately then and everything like that
3: yeah um I haven't gotten into paid advertising yet but Absolutely. I have two author pages. I had to upload my novels separately onto Amazon AU and to Amazon America, as well as all of the other countries that I wanted to publish in. You have to upload everything separately. So yeah, it, it, it is quite funny that it's the one company, but that in each country it's separate. So that is something people need to be aware of.
0: Skylar Finch can't stand Truman Alexander, so when her phone starts sending her notifications from the future and it looks like she's with Truman, as in romantically, she goes on a quest to fix it. But changing the future means complicating the present. In Now and When, a romantic dramedy with a time travel twist by Sarah Bennett Wheeler. Finding your way means accepting that life doesn't come with a road map. And that people, like glitchy phones, are full of surprises. Now and When is available now.
2: So Kate obviously has had, and we all have had, some horror stories about table selling. I've had, uh, I believe at this point in my career, I have had three events that zero people showed up to. And that's okay. Okay. It's okay. It happens. <laughs> Even the first time that it happened, I was just like, oh, well, because I was showing up um, at a library and they were paying me to show up. So, you know, I got paid anyway. It wasn't a huge blow. And also, I think we all need our ego pricked every now and then. So I think it's actually kind of healthy and good for you. But for the most part, I actually really enjoy table selling because I am very much and Kate can tell you this Mm -hmm. very much a mix of intro and extrovert when I Mm -hmm. am extroverted it is on like that switch goes on or it goes off there's no in between and so I'm really good at it and I actually carry a little bit of shame around inside because of it
1: because
2: (laughs) (laughs) Because it does feel dirty. Like, even when you're good at it, it feels kind of dirty. But I mean, I can usually sell just about whatever stock they've put on my table when I go to an event like that. I can say, even though I am traditionally published, when I first was going out and, you know, beating the streets and trying to put myself in front of librarians and in front of booksellers, I learned really quickly that when I walked in the door, I had to say that I was with HarperCollins, that I was being published by HarperCollins because I would walk in and I would say, hi, I'm a local author and their faces just closed. I watched it happen. They were just like, and I'm out. Like their librarians, booksellers, no matter what it was, they were just done because they had been inundated with local authors whose product had not gone through any quality control and mm. they'd been burned over yeah. and over and over. And mm-hmm. so I do think that that is a stumbling block that indie author's face when it comes to moving physical copies of the book. And I agree that the only way that you can combat that is by presenting yourself as professionally as possible. I've talked to other indie authors that have gotten reviews from, say, a fellow author in the genre that is very well known, a traditionally published author, that they just happen to be able to have a connection where they were able to get that. Or... As you were saying, even just knowing someone in the store, someone that can vouch for you. And it's interesting to me that in the end, indie, traditional, self-pub, whatever, networking is just so important. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I I definitely acknowledge that some poor bookstores are absolutely inundated with local authors whose books have not been properly edited, who have terrible covers and and all of those sort of like horror horror things. And I think this is, again, where indie authors really need to make sure that they are putting out quality products that are as good as traditionally published authors. So hiring a cover designer and having a really great cover made and then making sure that they have proper editing, structural editing, copy editing and proofreading and that the book actually look good like a proper traditional book by having the interior formatting done. I don't know if it's a lack of knowledge or a lack of laziness. I, I'm not sure how or why it happens, but some people do walk into a bookstore and and I know I've gone into bookstores and seen, you know, the little local author tag on the front of the book and it doesn't need the tag. You can tell it, it hasn't been, you know, yeah. you can tell. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's so sad. And I don't know if it's just a lack of knowledge or a lack of money or technical skill, but I do feel that, um, indie authors in many regards are lifting their game, but of course there is still all of the, all of the not so great products that are being, um, put out there. So yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. it's definitely an issue. And I think the only way to combat it is by showing up and being professional, assuring the manager that you have done all of the correct steps. And then like you mentioned before, actually, um, having quotes, from other authors who are prominent in the field who have read your book and liked it, I actually didn't mention that, but that was in my press kit as well. So I had um, several local traditionally published authors who had read my book and said very lovely things. I had quotes from them in it and and the reason why I targeted traditional but well-known local authors in my area is because I knew that the bookstore owner, had those books in store they knew that author's name they knew who they were either by name or in person so that meant something and it was a way to validate my work on
1: one hand you have this book that you spent seven years writing and it's very personal to you and you have this whole reason about why you wrote it it's it's all like the emotional writer stuff you know that you hear it's a it's a book of your heart but on the other hand, you have this very business-like way that you've approached publishing it and getting it out into the world. How do you reconcile those two different things and you know, using those two different parts of your brain and how do you balance that?
3: That is such a great question. Um, how I sort of perceive it is that the making of the book, that's when I was in the creative zone, the imaginative zone, tapping into um, the emotions, exploring my own grief and processing that. So all of that sort of, um, you know, the artist, that side of me was what was fully engaged when I was writing the book, editing the book. And once I had taken the book as far as I had I could take it. And once I'd gone through beta readers and editors and stuff, actually, I should say during that process of going through beta readers and editors, how you see the book does start to change and you start Mm -hmm. to, like, I still loved the story and I confess I would be editing it and I would kind of get caught up in it, which is such a strange (laughs) sensation. But Mm -hmm. um but still how you start to see the book. I don't know if it's a detachment, maybe that's what's starting to happen, but you do start to realize like, wow, I've moved out of the art making and now this thing has become a product. And I think that's how I was then able to move over into that sort of business minded, marketing minded mindset. And it was by seeing the book as a product now. And it it's not a baby. It was my baby when I was writing it, but now it's mm-hmm. this thing that is done and people can buy it and enjoy it. And I think that's how I was able to do that. Once you were in that
1: analytical mindset, did you get to a point where you were like, oh, wow, if I had started out writing at this analytical thing, maybe I would have written a different book. Mysteries that are XYZ, or maybe I would have added a romance element, or maybe I would have another genre or another, some twist of it that would have made it more marketable, a hotter book.
3: Yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying. And it's interesting because I tried to write a follow-up straight after this book. And because I knew how to write by this point, Mm -hmm. I created a really strong outline. I started writing it and it was immediately dead because I was too much in that analytical mindset. And now that's me Mm. personally. Again, every author writes differently. So obviously for me, I do need to be a little bit more of a discovery writer. And I need to have that emotional aspect engaged when I'm writing. Here's the thing about writing, whether you're traditionally published or indie, like you have no control over what's going to happen to the book once it's published and it's done. You don't know if it's going to sell well or sell bad. And the Mm -hmm. thing is, in order to be happy, you really need to write the book that you want to write. Because think about it, how bad would it be if you spent a year or two years or five years writing a book for market? You're not really into it. And then it gets published, it hits big, and all of a sudden you're committed to this genre and this story or this series that you're actually not even into. Like you don't even like it. And in that regard, I kind of feel like you might as well go get a day job because it would be easier and you get consistent money. So, you know, that's my sort of thinking about it. I really do feel like the writing has to be for you and you should write the story of your heart and write the book that you want to read. But when that book is done, that's when you get to step into The marketing business-minded side of things. That's how I view it, anyway. But I'm I'm well aware that there are people out there doing the rapid release model, writing books that aren't the books of their heart, that are just money makers. So I I know that that stuff is happening, but it's not something that I would do.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, I think I think there. You know, I see a lot of people who are rapid release, and I think they do still find they still do really love the writing. I think you have to, at some point, enjoy it. Because like you said, there are definitely other ways to make money that are easier than this. I don't know. I think if I wrote a book I didn't like, and it made gobs and gobs of money, I, I would keep writing and, you know, just use the cash to blot my tears. I think I, I, I could live with that. <laughs> <That's fantastic. Yeah. laughs> yes, what a terrible problem to have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I could do it. Um, our U.S. money is not terribly absorbent, but if I had enough dollar bills, I think I could soak it up.
2: I think if I ever end up in this situation where I'm using money for something other than currency, <laughs> I, think, I think I'm think i going to be okay. Like I'm sitting here <laughs> thinking about what else could I do with it? Because they always show people like burning it or whatever. And I'm like, that's, that's old. Rolling around in it naked. I, I would use it to like... Oh, I don't know. I would use it like sandbags, like stop an uh, overflow of water or something, right? Smashing ticks. I flush them down the toilet. I flush them down the toilet and I have nightmares about a huge like, colony of mutant ticks living in my septic system. <laughs> it's a, that's uh, probably going to be a thing that happens to me. That's probably how I die. I've already decided
1: that. <laughs> I've never had one on me. I'm a suburbs girl, so that kind of scares me. I know you are. I know you are.
2: You're, You're a hardcore suburbs girl. Surprised we get along, but we do. We do, yes. I think it's because you teach me how to take care of my skin and nails, and I just make sure you don't die. So anything else that you would like to add here before we sign off? I think most importantly, can you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find your book?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You can find out everything about me on my website, East.com. On there, I post weekly writing advice blogs, which cover a range of topics from inspiration, motivation, business and marketing advice, as well as time management and productivity tips, which is a personal passion of mine. And I also have a YouTube channel where I also post all of the same content, but just in video form. And my book, Every Time He Dies, is available everywhere online, Um, so you really don't have to hunt too hard for it. But, of course, all of the links are also on my website. And if you aren't really sure if the book is for you or not, you can actually download the first three chapters for free off the website so that you can have a little sneak peek and try before you buy and I'm also on social media of course I'm on Instagram Twitter and Facebook under author Tara East yes and I'm looking at um the cover of your book
1: and it is a gorgeous cover I really really love it beautiful thank you
3: very much yeah uh, the designer worked hard on it so I really appreciate that It, it is gorgeous and I've gotten a lot of feedback on that actually